Hey everybody, welcome to the LifeBridge Sermon Audio Podcast. You can find our weekly podcasts called The Bible Lab with Jake and Ryan on SoundCloud and Spotify. Or if you'd like to watch the full Sunday service, you can head over to our Facebook page or YouTube page. The links are below. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Well, I'm going to ask you to do uh, the same thing that we've been doing for some time, which is opening to the book of Revelation, or as the church has traditionally called it, the Apocalypse of the Apostle John. Revelation chapter 6 is where our study will continue this morning. As I wrote about this passage in my preparation this week, I developed a working title, uh, and as with all things that I do, it was rather wordy. It was rather lengthy. Uh, but I characterized this passage um, as what could be called the preventable tragedy of willful rebellion. The preventable tragedy of willful rebellion. To explain a bit, you're probably familiar with the word tragedy. It's a term which describes a story in which a series of events results in a character's ruin. Generally, this happens, if you're familiar with the genre, because of a serious flaw or deficiency in the character that goes unresolved throughout the story. Now, what this means is that the thing about a tragedy is it's almost always avoidable or preventable. Now, Greek dramas developed this form If you took an English class in high school, you may have had to read an ancient tragedy like the tragedy of Oedipus Rex, okay? It's a bummer of a story. Um, Or you may be more familiar with Shakespeare, who wrote many popular tragedies like Macbeth and Othello. Or for those of you not uh, quite interested or current on Greek dramas or ancient uh, playwriting, maybe you recognize the story of Titanic, Uh, Because it's one of those stories where a perfect series of avoidable, preventable mistakes all taken together resulted in ruin. That's a tragedy. Now, the greatest example, of course, in all of literature that everyone's mind will go to of preventable tragedy is Romeo and Juliet. Because you'll know that if they could have stopped for five minutes being overdramatic, (laughs) impulsive teenagers... They wouldn't have died, okay? Uh, And they probably would have lived happily ever after. But what makes the story gripping and impactful is you see exactly what's coming. You see the trajectory of the story, and you're hoping that they'll turn it around. You're hoping that they'll reverse their bad decisions, that they'll be fixed from their fatal flaws, and that the story will end happily, and you get pulled in because of it. What makes it tragic is because it's so completely preventable. Now, what we'll read about in this passage today is the dramatic conclusion of what we might call a tragedy that had been developing for a long time. It might have been called the tragedy of the great city of Jerusalem that was now coming to a close. God had 
ordained that this act was coming to an end, that this age was coming to an end, and that with the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, a new age, the age of the church, was going to begin. Now, he had ordained this, but for the individuals of their day, as we read it, we have to ask, what if it didn't have to end that way? What if something had happened along the way that though God had ordained destruction for the city of Jerusalem as he was going to replace it with a new heavenly Jerusalem, what if for the individuals of that day something could have gotten their attention and changed their trajectory? Our study today is going to leave us with this understanding. There are two possible visions of the future for our lives. One that leads to redemption and one that leads to ruin. One characterized by devotion, one by destruction. You could say our lives are stories that will be written either as testimonies or as tragedies. Our lives are on course this very moment for one or the other. And the determining factor is simply this. What will we do with Jesus? What will we do with Jesus? Will we be like those who we'll read about today who tragically hardened their hearts to him? Or will we be like those that we read about last week who willingly and sacrificially gave themselves to him? That is the question. What will we make of Jesus? So read with me, if you will, in Revelation chapter 6, Starting in verse 12. Then I, I being the Apostle John, saw him, him being Jesus, open the sixth seal. And as a refresher, the seal that he's talking about is one of seven seals on a scroll that was held in the right hand of the Father. And John sees a vision of God the Father giving it to Christ the Son, who because of his sacrifice is worthy to open the scroll. This scroll contains what God has ordained for the coming of his new kingdom, the coming of his heavenly Jerusalem and the establishment of the church. It's God's blueprint for how he is going to establish the age of the church. And Jesus is opening it seal by seal. We read that when he opened the sixth scroll or seal on the scroll, a violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, and as we read sobering promises of judgment, I pray that we would hear your voice, O God. And that we would not be as those who harden our hearts, but as those who open our hearts to willingly receive your instruction. 
Father, we pray this today in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't think it's going too far to say that what we can glean off the surface of this text, first and foremost, is that God's judgment is very, very real. Okay? God's judgment is very real. The sixth seal opens, and what John sees can only be described as cataclysmic. It's disaster. There's scenes of massive destruction. Before we go any further and get more specific, let's just pause there. The judgment of God is very, very real. And let's start with this. Churches are not preaching about the judgment of God any longer. Okay? This is not happening uh, very commonly in our day. By and large, that went out the door in the last 50 years because American churches did enough market research to realize that, guess what? Hell is not a popular topic. Shocker. It's not bringing people through the door. Imagine that. The average person does not want to think about the possibility that their current lifestyle may result in them being eternally and forever separated from God in a place of eternal suffering and condemnation. The fear has been among Christians, and especially Christian leaders, that if we're too honest about hell, then people will not think Christians are loving, and they won't want to come to church. But the Bible, contrary to the best intelligent minds in the church who maybe think that we're too smart to preach about hell any longer, the Bible presents a unified picture from beginning to end that there are only two scenarios possible when your earthly life ends. Daniel calls it in chapter 12, verse 2, everlasting life or everlasting contempt. Jesus, our Lord, gave us these options, eternal life or eternal punishment. Jesus was history's most prolific preacher on the topic of hell. And in case it has ever been unclear to you, and God forgive me if it's ever been unclear to you in this church, the basics of judgment are simple. Eternal life is the destination of every person who believes and obeys Jesus Christ. Period. Eternal wrath is the destination of all those who persist in unbelief and who do not obey Jesus Christ for salvation. Period. Never ever, in any way, shape, or form, is there any other scenario. There is no gray. There is no neutral. There is no purgatory. There is no middle ground. There are no second chances. There is complete finality. You and every human you interact with are eternal creatures and will experience eternity in either of these two realities. Stop right there and think about that for a moment. And then consider how massively Hugely important is that information and how completely does that put our priorities in perspective. 
Far be it from us as we get into this text today and we'll get to all the questions that everyone has about how and who and when. We're in the book of Revelation, of course, but far be it from us to get so caught up in the end times teaching of this passage that we forget the most important impression we should get, which is that it is an awful thing to suffer the judgment of Almighty God. So before we go any further in the text this morning, you, right where you're at, consider this. Your eternity is real, and it matters. There is a desperate need for you to wake up and to see that what we do here and what we read about here and what we do with Jesus' message in our hearts is astronomically, everlastingly important. And if we don't understand this first, then we can't possibly understand how important that Jesus is. If we don't get the reality of judgment, if we don't get the finality of judgment, then we can't possibly say that we appreciate and understand the wonderful love of Jesus Christ that we have received. We can't possibly claim to appreciate the gospel that we have been given. Today in the text, we read some very important details about this judgment. And John shows us four important things to wrap our heads around about God's judgment. First being this, God's judgment is indiscriminate. You'll notice in our text today that John mentions seven different types of people. Seven's an important number in Scripture because it represents completion John mentions seven different types of people across all classes and strata and layers of society, meaning what? That no one is immune from God's judgment. No one gets an exception based on class or privilege. God's judgment is not just indiscriminate, it's universal. John mentions different areas of the earth, and surprise, surprise, how many different parts of the earth does he mention? He mentions seven, meaning what? That God's judgment is everywhere. There's nowhere to escape from it or to hide from it. It's inevitable. He reveals that God's judgment is revealing because those who experience God's judgment want to hide from his face because the gaze of the Lord exposes our sinfulness and even our most hidden works and deeds done in darkness, as the scriptures say. And lastly, that God's judgment is devastating because in response to God's judgment he makes it clear no one is able to stand God's judgment is indiscriminate it's universal it's revealing and it's devastating how should we then as Christians think about God's judgment if the tendency is for us to shrink back from talking about it how should we think rightly about it well the apostle Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 I'd encourage you to go there with me, starting in verse 5. We read in chapter 1, verse 5 of Second Thessalonians, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. The Apostle Paul says that on the day that Jesus is revealed from heaven in his second coming, it will be a source of relief to his people. Paul calls God's judgment relief to his people. It will be a day when they marvel at Jesus. Excuse me. (coughs) When they marvel at Jesus and glorify God because he has come to relieve their suffering and punish evil. Judgment is something that believers do not fear. When we think about judgment... Judgment is not something that we fear. That's one of the great gifts Jesus has given us. Judgment is a source of fear to those who do not know Christ, but judgment is a source of comfort to those who love and obey him. Therefore, proper teaching about judgment is important not only to warn non-believers, but to comfort believers that God's day of salvation is coming. See, the problem with preaching on hell and the wrath of God is that generally it accomplishes one of two things in our day. One, it either terrifies the believer, or two, comforts the unbeliever. Okay? Uh, Most teaching on hell either results in believers doubting their salvation and being afraid or unbelievers being unnecessarily and unjustly comforted. Biblical teaching on hell should do neither. But the worst thing that we could do is avoid it. Because avoiding the judgment of God, contrary to popular belief, is itself unloving. It's unloving because if we avoid the topic of judgment, it cheapens our understanding of the costliness of Christ's love. Not only that, it's unloving because avoiding the judgment of God leads to complacency in our love toward one another. Think about this. If the very eternity of the person next to you in church each and every week depends on faithfulness to Jesus then what responsibility do we have to each other to push each other towards the finish line? If, if the, the eternity of the people that I worship with in this body, in this place, depends on their continued faithfulness to the one who has saved them by his sacrifice, then the biggest responsibility we have is we have to put our arms around each other and take this seriously. That the idea of someone in our midst being lapsed in their faith or falling away in their faith should be unthinkable. It should be a crisis. And we rally to each other's cause because we have a responsibility that I want you to be there with me on that day. If we avoid judgment, it cheapens the costliness of God's love. It leads to complacency in our love toward one another. And it also leads to apathy in our love toward outsiders and non-believers because it gives us the impression that ministry to those outside the church is optional. We can't avoid the judgment of God. Refusing to acknowledge it cheapens how incredible and wonderful the love of God is for us in Christ. If we don't get that in a very real way, we were set apart for destruction and without intervention, the cause was completely lost. Then how can we appreciate that Jesus plunged into the waves of judgment in order to drag us to shore? And without understanding the judgment of God, how do we know what we're here for now? We have a calling, which is to encourage each other as we see that day drawing near. 
And as the short little book before Revelation called Jude tells us right towards the end of its one little chapter, it says our reason for being here is that as we preach and as we live for Christ, just maybe we'll be able to save others by snatching them from the fire. See, Christian love is love that seeks to save because judgment is real. God's judgment is real. And what we'll see in the text today is that what God judges is hard-hearted rebellion. God judges hard-hearted rebellion. Our question then in today's text is as we read about the judgment of God, who's on the receiving end of this judgment? And to get there, I wanna, uh, I'm going to go an interesting direction maybe, which is I want to uh, bring your attention to the sociological phenomenon of internet memes. Okay? Track with me for a second. I, I promise we'll get there. Memes, if you think about this, are a very complex system of communication. Because here's the deal. It's a system of communication that depends on shared context and language in order to communicate meaning. Okay? In fact, there's a, a complex shared understanding that you have to have with someone in order to be able to pass a meme to them, and it makes sense. Sometimes they rely even on multiple levels of shared knowledge or experience in order to mean anything. Now, if you don't believe me, have you ever tried or have you ever laughed at a meme that you saw online and then tried to explain it to someone else? Okay? Like imagine taking a meme that you and your friends found funny and bringing it to your grandma and trying to explain it, okay? Or for you married folk, trying to explain why something's funny to your spouse, right? It, it generally doesn't work because they don't have the same shared context and experience. Or if you really want to see how that works, try sharing a political meme with someone who doesn't hold to the same values as you. They're probably not going to laugh the same way, okay? See how that works out. Now, to understand uh, where we're going today, Revelation is essentially using Old Testament memes to communicate New Testament meaning, okay? It's using memes from the Old Testament to tell the believers of John's day about what's going to happen in their day. But it's using pictures that only make sense if you have the shared knowledge and context of the scriptures in the Old Testament, the big reason that so many interpreters come up with wildly different explanations about the book is they can't agree on what the symbols represent. Now, the approach that we've been using has focused on a few different values. Now, you could call it by whatever ism you want, but it really focuses on a few things that I believe are clearly true, okay? Which is, first, these are Old Testament quotes and symbols above all else, okay? These are Old Testament quotes and symbols. Second, they meant something in John's day. This is important. They meant something in John's day, that would have been similar to their meaning when they were first written. Otherwise, why the, why the heck else would John use them? Okay, They meant something similar in John's day to what they meant in the day in which they were written. That's why the symbols or the memes work. Third, these symbols also speak to things that modern Christians will experience in our day symbolically. And lastly... Ultimately, the purpose, we have to come back to this every time, is not to reveal specific time frames and events, but to reveal Jesus. 
and to remind his church of his ultimate victory, the hope of his world to come, and the worthiness of his name. Okay? Jesus, we've used this definition of revelation, and this is kind of our working definition that we'll keep coming back to. Jesus is using Old Testament pictures to communicate with first century believers about what they would experience in their day. But he does so in symbolic ways so that they will also teach us what we will experience in our day. So what we can expect as we go to this text today is we can expect to find some symbols. We can expect that they would have been meaningful and understood by the first century believers who would have read it. And then we can get to how we might understand that in our day. And there are a few symbols that we should look at together. The first that you'll notice if we take a look at verses 12 through 14 is the symbol of falling stars, the shaking of the heavens, the darkening of the moon, all of that. This imagery is used repeatedly in the Old Testament prophets. In fact, John pretty much rips it off word for word from Isaiah in places like Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34. There are as many as five to seven different prophetic passages in Ezekiel and Isaiah and other places where where John lifts language directly to apply to their day. Here's the thing. When they used this language specifically about the darkening of the sun, the shaking of the heavens, the falling of the stars, almost every single time they were talking about God bringing a nation's existence to its end. Here's an example. In Isaiah 13, starting in verse 9, he tells us, okay, he tells us, he's talking about the nation of Babylon, the earthly, physical kingdom of Babylon. He says, look, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger to make the earth a desolation and destroy its sinners. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine. I will punish the world for its evil and wicked people for their iniquities. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and humiliate the insolence of tyrants. I will make a human more scarce than fine gold and mankind more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its foundations at the wrath of the Lord of armies on the day of his burning anger. Isaiah tells us what he's talking about. He's talking about Babylon, but he's using big, global, universal language to do so. He's talking about massive catastrophe, but then tells us what it means. It means God's going to visit the Babylonians and not in a good way. He's going to shake their earth He's going to darken their skies. And what is it going to look like? It's going to look like them being conquered. It means Babylon is going to fall and be conquered by other nations. And guess what? It happened. They were conquered by the Medes and the Persians. When God said he was going to darken the sun, it meant he was going to shut off their lights and closing them, close them down. Okay? The shaking of the heavens and the earth meant God was shaking up the current order of things in the world, and he was going to knock a nation off its place. It meant change and upheaval. The language in John's vision is lifted basically word for word from places like that. Now put yourself in the audience, hearing John's letter of Revelation for the first time, being familiar with the Old Testament context, and what are you going to be thinking as you hear this passage? You're going to think, oh yeah, God punishing Babylon. I remember that. Okay, what does that mean? God's going to punish a sinful nation. He's going to knock a nation off its place. 
Make sense? The question is, which nation is John talking about? Well, John gives us a picture in the form of two symbols that should make it pretty clear. First, the image of the sun, moon, and stars. And second, the imagery of a fig tree. If you're an experienced reader of the Bible, then ask yourself this question. Which nation in Scripture has been re represented historically by both the sun, moon, and stars, as well as a fig tree that does not produce appropriate fruit? The nation of Israel. Check this out. In the latter half of Genesis, we meet a dreamer named Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 9, in which we're told he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream. And this time, the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He told his father and brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you have had? He said, am I, your mother, and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. How was the family of Jacob or Israel represented? Sun, moon, and stars. Okay? Bowing down to Joseph. We know from being good students of Scripture, it's also symbolic of Jesus being raised up from Israel as the worthy king before whom all people would bow. You might be asking yourself, well, is that really what John has in mind? How can you know? That seems like a stretch. Well, consider this. In Revelation chapter 12, John tells us the story of Jesus in the form of a parable. The story of a woman who gives birth to a baby who's born to be king, and there's an eager, hungry, hateful dragon that wants to devour the promised child. It's very clearly a retelling of the story of Jesus, that Satan wants to destroy Jesus because he's the promised king who will conquer and rule. Okay, the woman represents... Israel. And what is she wearing? We're told in chapter 12, she's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown made of 12 stars. John is being shown by God that God is going to shake the nation of Israel as a political entity from its place of privilege and authority because it has rejected Jesus. And if you don't believe the correlation between rejecting Jesus and God's judgment on Jerusalem, consider this. When Jesus died on the cross. What two things does the Gospel of Matthew tell us happened in Jerusalem? The sky was darkened and the earth shook. John says there's going to be a dark sky, a shaking of the earth, and then God is going to judge the nation that's marked by the sun, moon, and stars. Seems pretty clear to me. Consider also the fig tree. Think about this. This is how Jesus addressed the religious leaders of Israel in his day. In Luke chapter 13, he told the religious establishment in Jerusalem, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil. A few verses later, in case we still don't believe the correlation and his intentions and what he's communicating, if you go to the end of chapter 13, Jesus recites this familiar lament. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you. You would gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were 
not willing. See, your house is abandoned to you. Altogether, John is being shown that a time is coming when God is going to shake Jerusalem like a fig tree in a storm. That their time at the top was coming to an end and that they will be handed over to conquering armies just like the pagan nations in the Old Testament that God had judged. Not only that, but that on that day the wrath of God would be so severe that people would hide themselves in the mountains and caves to try to escape. And guess what? History records that when the Romans invaded Judea and laid siege to Jerusalem, that is exactly what happened. Those who rebelled against Rome fled to the caves and the mountain fortresses in an attempt to escape so much that we're told by a Jewish historian named Josephus in, in his book, The Wars of the Jews, he records this. So now the last hope which supported the tyrants and that crew of robbers who were with them. Remember the words of Jesus? He said that they had turned the temple into a den of what? Thieves and robbers. So now the last hope which supported the tyrants and that crew of robbers who were with them was in the caves and caverns underground, hoping that after the whole city should be destroyed and the Romans gone away, they might come out again and escape from them. This was no better than a dream of theirs, for they were not able... Catch this. Catch this. They were not able to lie hidden either from God or from the Romans. God judged them because of their continued pattern of hard-hearted rebellion. And what a tragedy. The Son of God walked among them close enough that they could have reached out and touched Him. And yet they persisted in rebelling and rejecting His teaching and rebelling and killing the prophets and ultimately killing the Son of God Himself. God judged their hard-hearted rebellion. See, when we hear the word sin, we often think about a list of things that we shouldn't do. God doesn't like it when we do bad things. But that's not it. That's not the whole story. The real issue is what lies underneath, which is our rebellious hearts. See, sinful behavior only exists because of sinful desires and rebellious attitudes in us. The problem that the gospel of Jesus is meant to cure isn't that we have bad behavior that needs to be corrected. It's that you and I, just like those in Jerusalem, have hearts that are naturally rebellious toward God and produce sin as a full-time job. To put that in Wisconsin terms for you, imagine you're making cheese curds, okay? All right? And so what happens? You've got this milky mixture of whey, right? And as the whey curdles, all the curds rise to the top and you skim off the curd, right? And that's how you get those squeaky little nuggets of goodness, okay? And so the cheese is what you take away, right? But really, the action happens in what goes on underneath, in all the chemical reactions that produce it. It's produced by what's going on underneath the surface. In the same way, we think of sin as the stuff to be skimmed away on the top, on the surface. It's all the bad stuff we do. But the problem Jesus came to fix is the conditions of our heart which continue to produce sin. The realm realm where God wants to do his work in you and where he wanted to do his work in the leaders of Jerusalem is not just in the realm of behavior. He wants to renovate your heart. 
The primary work of God in our lives is that he wants to transform our hearts. And here's the thing. You can let him work on the surface while still rebelling against him in your heart. You can allow God to clean up your behavior while still having a heart that is far from God. But God wants to transform our hearts through the grace of Jesus and turn us from rebellion to repentance. See, this passage may have first been about the destruction of Jerusalem, but it's instructive for us because it shows us what rebellion looks like and it shows us where rebellion always leads. Rebellion always ends in hiding from God. Rebellion always ends in hiding from God. Think back to the garden. Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against God. And what was the result? They needed to hide from God, the God who made them, the one who walked with them, who cared for them, who breathed life into their very nostrils, now became a source of fear to them instead of a source of comfort and joy. That's what sin does. When we continue in rebellion, the result is that we run from God because we're under judgment. When he's the one whose comfort and peace and mercy we really need, our souls were created for him and long to be united from him. And the end of rebellion is that it leads to us being separated from his love and presence. See, hell is full of many torments and sorrows, but none so great as the knowledge that our souls will never experience the fulfillment of our deep longing for the Lord. Those who reside there find in themselves the pitiable mixture of both hatred for God and unfulfilled longing for God. Rebellion and hiding always go together. Today, if you feel the need to run from God, it's an indicator that something is wrong. If you feel the need to run away from him, it's an indicator that something in your life and in your heart is not right. And there's an area in which you are not in alignment with God. And unfortunately, that's why so many people, even Christians, when they're in sin, what do they do? They run. When a Christian has lapsed into sin, what's the first thing that happens? They stop coming to church. They stop answering the phone when someone from church is calling. Why? Because there's a voice that we experience in those moments that tells us we can't go to the God whose comfort we long for. We can't because we've messed up. But friends, that's what we might call spiritual misinformation. Okay, there's a lot of silly talk in our day about misinformation and whatever. But a bigger problem in our day is so many people are subject to spiritual misinformation. And it takes many forms. It takes the form in our day of religious voices that affirm you in what scripture calls sin. If there's a voice in your life that tells you it's not a big deal, don't worry about it. God doesn't care that much. That's misinformation. But there's another form of misinformation, which is the inward voice that condemns you and keeps you from coming to seek grace. Friends, that's misinformation. Neither one of those are the truth. The world affirms you in your rebellion. The enemy says, run and hide. But Jesus says, repent and be healed. God judges hard-hearted rebellion. And our third takeaway today is simply this. Hard-hearted rebellion results in preventable tragedy. Okay? It results in preventable tragedy. Now, when I use the, tra- the word tragedy, tragedy does not mean that God is unjust. 
It does not mean unjust. Two things can be true at the same time. First, that God is just, and yet, secondly, that destruction is tragic. Now, what's so tragic about the story of Jerusalem is there were so many opportunities for them to turn back and listen. God gave them opportunities over and over to hear his voice and turn, even coming to them himself. Jesus put it this way again in Luke 19, starting in verse 41, when we're told he approached and saw the city and he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring you peace. If you only knew, if you only knew the comfort and the peace that I've come to bring you, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. They could not recognize that God had visited them because they continued to be hard-hearted toward him. It was a tragedy that was so preventable. Revelation chapter 6 gives us two very different pictures to compare. Last week, the fifth seal showed those who are faithful to Jesus, even the point of losing their lives, being kept safely and securely in his presence. The sixth seal shows those who reject Jesus in hard-hearted, willful rebellion, experiencing his wrath poured out. And really, they show us the two visions of the future that each of us face. Our lives will either be willingly surrendered and sacrificial to God or willfully rebellious toward God. Our hearts will be open to God's correction and leading or closed to his voice. Think about these as two different trajectories that our lives will travel. One is the way of destruction. One is the way of devotion. One is the way that results in tragedy. One results in treasure. One means being kept by God. One means wishing to be kept from God. And the difference between these two scenarios will not be the result of any human endeavor or production. It won't be because some got their religious system right and others got it wrong. It won't be because of anything you have or think that you earned. The difference is this, that you would know the one who is holy and true. He's called the Lamb of God and his name is Jesus Christ. The question today is what will we do with this Jesus. Because Jesus makes a completely different type of story possible. It's called the anti-tragedy. See, a tragedy is a story which one flaw over time results in ruin. That's us in our sin. Because we can't stop sinning. But an anti-tragedy is a story in which the flaws which would have resulted in ruin are suddenly and unpredictably turned from ruin to redemption. If you want to understand the magnitude of the love and the power of Jesus, consider on the one hand the destruction we were destined for, and on the other hand the salvation which we've been offered, and recognize that the infinite distance between those two was bridged by Jesus Christ when he stretched out his arms to receive the nails of Calvary. He was stretching with his own hands the distance between ruin and redemption, between tragedy and treasure. Paying the difference between your demise and your deliverance. Suffering the full wrath of God so you would not have to. 
Friends, let me tell you this. Each and every one of us has a tragic flaw. It's not good news, and I hate to tell you, but you are flawed. I know it's news to some of you. You are deeply, deeply flawed. We can't stop sinning. We can't choose good, not even a little bit. We can't avoid ruin. But in Christ, you are deeply, deeply loved. And because of him, you have been powerfully saved. See, you do not need to perish. But the only safe place from the wrath of God is in God, through Jesus. You see, it's really simple, friends. Jesus makes all the difference. He makes all the difference. Today, I would love it if we would just stop right here, what we're doing, and think about this. Let's take some time today and just recognize Jesus. Recognize the different visions of your future that exist because of him, and let's show him appreciation for who he is. And today, friends, if you don't know him, the most important thing that you can do today is not get home and start making the deviled eggs. It's not getting home and making the cocktail weenies for the Super Bowl. Oh, big game. I'm sorry. I don't have copyright permission for that. The most important thing you could do right now is stop, listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to reveal himself to you. Because if you do, right here today, he will save you and he will deliver your soul from wrath. And that is very, very good news. Let's pray.